What is up, my dudes? Welcome to another episode of Olympia Oddities. I don't know why I was so hell-bent on having an alliteration when I know damn well that I have trouble saying alliterations. I'll get it one day, but today's not the day. Um, alright, some pre-show notes. Uh, Skittles had his very last vet appointment, fingers crossed, for now, because they said that they just want to leave the rod in his leg, um, as long as it doesn't end up causing any problems. And, like, I'm gonna give him through the winter to just, like, be an indoor cat, and then in the spring, we'll see if he can go back outside. I know that he really needs to, to be, like, his happiest little cat self, and he's, you know, a barn cat at heart, that's what he loves to do, that's his job. But I am so nervous to even let him out of my sight after what happened. But yeah, they and they uh, left the uh, bullets in his leg too. And actually, I got to see the x-rays. And he had like three up in his tail, some up in his like upper thigh, uh, pelvis, and back region. He, we're thinking it was a shotgun, just the amount of bullets that he had in him. It was absolutely insane. Um, Yeah, that was just super stressful. And I'm really glad that it's pretty much over with. Like, he's healed. He thinks that he's healed. Um, he's kind of adapted more to being an indoor cat, and it's- it's- everything's worked out for the best. And also, thank you to everyone who donated to my, uh, GoFundMe that I had for him. That, um, super helped out because it did end up being a very expensive ordeal, and I'm just hoping that this is the end of it, and, you know, the rod's gonna work out and just stay in his leg okay. And we won't have to remove that because that was honestly the- I wasn't even worried about the money. The thing that I was worried about most was um, just putting him through surgery again and then having to wear a cone and a bandage and start like the whole process over again. And also, once again, I'm recording from a different room. I haven't bought printer ink yet because it's expensive and it's the holidays and honestly, I just haven't made it into like- a staples or wherever the hell you buy printer ink. So I'm once again in a different room with my squeaky chair and possible noise distractions in the background. I'm sorry. I'm really looking into like improving the audio and just like my general, um, I'm trying to get more serious about this overall. So I want to get like a better, not studio because I don't want to be like on a SoundCloud musician level, like pretentiousness about myself, but I want to get a better recording space set up, so that will be happening in the future, but for now, let's get into to today's episode. So today's episode is about one of the most prolific bank robbers in American history, as well as a story from one of the very first true crime books I ever read, The End of the Dream, The Golden Boy Who Never Grew Up, and Other True, true Crime Stories by Anne Rule. So, I swiped this book from my dad after he told me this story, kind of like a, you know, a PG-rated version of this story as a kid, and I swiped this book from him, and I skimmed it, and I remember the photo section in the middle. You know how, like, books will have, like, the center section that's, like, all the photos from the books? Um, and there were some, like, graphic-ass true crime things in there, and, like, there was this story, but there was also, like, stories of murder. And it traumatized me. But it was also, like, one of the things that ignited my, like, weird love. Where, like, I'm one of those people that, like, I want to read about the grisly details. I want to know all the deepest, darkest things of humanity. And I don't know why. I'm also at the same time the same, pers- same kind of person that, like, I'm a vegetarian. 
if there's a bug, I make someone come and get it for me and, like, put it on a piece of paper and put it outside. Like, <laughs> like I'm, like, a very non-violent, like, pro-gun control, very, like, hippie almost type of person. I mean, I believe in, like, protesting uh, even to a violent amount because that seems like the way that things have only got you know, actual change done through history. But me, personally, I'm a pretty non-violent, non-aggressive person. And I don't even know where I'm going with this. But anyways, let's just get right into it. Scott Skurlock was born William Scott Skurlock in Reston, Virginia. His dad was a preacher and his mom was a teacher. Good rhyming there, huh? He was a smart kid, but unmotivated when it came to school. Heavily relate to that. Uh, in 1974, he moved to Hawaii from Virginia and reunited with his friend Kevin Myers, who went to the University of Hawaii. Kevin had the same issues with school as Scott, so they soon ended up working on a five-acre tomato farm on the island of, o of Oahu, which is how I think you say that. I'm really bad at geography, guys. I'm gonna just throw it out now. I've been winging it so hard throughout this podcast. I, there's just like a mental block in my mind when it comes to math in geography. I have the vaguest idea of where things are in Washington. If you go anywhere outside of that, it's outside of my pay grade. I'm just going to be completely honest. So in 1976, while working on the farm, they came across a marijuana grow on a neighboring farm. They ended up stealing some of the smaller plants and sold the weed. They hadn't be they hadn't planned on becoming involved in the drug industry, but after everything sold quickly and they had easy cash in hand, they began planting their own plants on the farm that they worked on. After a while, the property owner found out, firing both of the men and kicking them off the property. And this is when I should jump in and just say, that was just one of many stupid decisions that are made in this story. I really feel like this story should be made into a movie. It's just every- it sounds like- if I were to, like, give you a rundown of it in, like, short sentences, it would just sound like a Stefan sketch from SNL, where it's like, this story has everything. And if I give it away now, you guys aren't going to keep on listening, so you're just going to have to stay tuned. But I s really hope that one day a movie is made out of this, because it's just absolutely ridiculous. So Scott then decided to move to Olympia, Washington. Hey! A real local story. He enrolled at the Evergreen State College and had dreams of becoming a doctor. He did well in all of his classes, but the one he had the most talent for was chemistry. And I thought it was really funny when I was researching this that um, every single article would say, like, he did really well in his classes because it's like at Evergreen, you, like, grade yourself pretty much. So it's, like, it's hard not to do well in your classes. But anyways, here's one of my favorite details. He began to sneak into Evergreen's chemistry lab at night through the ceiling to make meth. Yup. And with the money that he made selling meth, uh, if my computer would co cooperate, he was able to buy some property located near Olympia. It was 200 acres of land with a small house on it that he began using as his new meth production site, using chemicals that he stole from the Evergreen labs. He also began construction on his infamous treehouse. It was about 60 feet off the ground and featured 30 windows. It included an extra-large fireplace, outdoor bathtub, and an emergency escape using ropes and zip lines. Scott would brag that it only took two weeks for him and a few others to finish building, you know, with help from the, uh, good old meth. Scott, or er, in reality, it would actually take months, since they were stealing the lumber used to build it from a nearby lumber yard. 
At age 27, Skurlock gave an interview to the Seattle Times for an article about his treehouse. Steve Myers, Kevin's brother, was a successful sculptor who was hired to come work on the treehouse. He's quoted as saying, There was nothing in the house that was conscientiously, conscientious, conscientiously designed. That's very much what Scott was like. Scott was popular amongst his friends that he referred to as his tribe, insert eye roll here, and they would do almost anything for him. That's an important detail for later on in the story. He was described as being open and free and would often videotape himself in the nude. He was described as engaging and charming, but also focused and in control of himself. With his easy money, Scott began living his version of the high life. He traveled extensively, had plenty of girlfriends, and treated himself to fine restaurants and champagne. He was a regular at the Bud Bay Cafe. Skurlock would typically order the night's special, washed down with expensive champagne, either Dom Perignon or Cristal, about one twenty-five a bottle at the time. In one sitting, Skurlock would run up a bill of 200 to 250 for two or three people, and only 30 of that was for food, said Brett Hibbard, owner of the Bud Bay Cafe. He was known by servers to give $1,000 tips. Other than that, Skurlock didn't really show flashy tastes. He wore older L.L. Bean-style outdoor-type clothing and drove a 1940s truck. Things weren't completely trouble-free around this time, though. He was cited for malicious mischief after he and a friend took a car and did donuts on a construction site. He wasn't the driver, so the charges were dropped. Uh, he was also arrested for refusing to get out of his car at a traffic stop. His friend was driving, but Skurlock was drunk and thought if he got out of the car, he would be charged with public intoxication. The case was dismissed after he went through counseling. Neighbors said that they knew little about Skurlock, except for that he hated real estate signs posted on the er, country road where he lived. He disliked the signs so much that he often knocked them off their posts. Skurlock threatened his neighbor, Greg Smith, who lived a quarter mile away, for posting four sale signs on the road. The two had a running battle over the signs. Every time Smith hoisted a sign up, Skurlock would tear it down. One evening, Skurlock drove to Smith's home, demanding that he stop putting real estate signs on the road. He was the scariest guy I ever met, said Smith, a campus minister at Evergreen. He was in a rage. He was cursing and screaming and threatening me just because of the signs. Although Skurlock did not threaten him with a weapon, Smith said, he was still frightened by his temper. Smith said it was the only time he ever met his neighbor. Smith said he immediately reported the incident to the sheriff or the Thurston County Sheriff's Department. An officer later went to Sherlock's home and told him not to pull the signs down. Scott ended up dropping out of Evergreen due to the money that he was making. When asked if the money was his main motivation in his life by a friend, Scott said, No, no. All it does is let you live a little easier. Which is such a, like, privileged rich person thing to say. Like, anyone with enough money to live comfortably is like, Oh, no, money doesn't matter. Where it's like, Yo, some of us are out here hurting, though. But everything would change in 1989, when Skurlock's main meth distributor was murdered. 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 There we go. (laughs) He immediately decided that the lifestyle was too dangerous and quit it. He had a ton of savings, so he was able to live for two years before deciding on his next business venture. Bank robbing. Skurlock reached out to his old trusted college friend, Mark Biggins. He had previously hired Biggins to work on his property to help him out financially, as Biggins was struggling financially and had a family to support. Because of this, Biggins felt obligated to say yes when Skurlock asked him to help rob banks. 
The first robbery was June 25th, 1992, at Seafirst Bank in Madison Park. It didn't go well at all, but they managed to pull it off. Scott wore a rubber nose and a heavy coat of makeup on his face. Biggins went for a rubber, a rubber Ronald Reagan mask. The two men walked into the bank and aggressively announced their presence and barked orders to intimidate witnesses, a tactic they called the take charge method. No shots were fired. They left within minutes and didn't bother with the vaults. They planned on getting away in a car from someone at the bank to use, or they planned on getting a car from someone at the bank to use as a getaway vehicle, which they succeeded in, but Biggins was so nervous that he flooded the car's engine. And I asked my dad about this, and I guess in older cars, if you pressed on the gas pedal too many times before you put the key in the engine, you would uh, flood the engine. So you, I just love the visual of this guy shaking so hard that his foot is just slamming on the gas pedal while like he's shaking and trying to fit the keys into the ignition. I'm just like, why hasn't a movie been made of this yet? I don't know why. So they had to take off on foot encountering aggressive dogs and running across a golf course, leaving confused witnesses and golfers. Overall, nobody got hurt and they left Seattle about $20,000 richer. Biggins immediately quit because he decided that the lifestyle was not for him, but Scott enjoyed the adrenaline rush and decided to take up bank robbing all on his own. He became known as the Hollywood Bandit, or just Hollywood, because of the elaborate disguises and makeup he used during the robberies. Two months later, when he walked into the Seafirst Bank in Madison Park, yeah, the same bank from the first robbery. He robbed the same bank twice in two months. This time, his disguise was different, but the employees and the FBI and police who reviewed the surveillance recognized his demeanor and method so they knew that it was the same guy. He asked Kevin Myers for help bank robbing, but he declined, but felt obligated enough to Skurlock to handle laundering the money for him, mainly through Las Vegas casinos. He had plenty of banks, or Skurlock had plenty of banks to choose from in the area, and they were filled with money from the growing tech industry in Seattle. In 1992, he robbed six banks, leaving little to no clues for the FBI. In 1993, Steve Myers became a lookout for Skurlock. He monitored police scanners, and when 911 calls came in about the robbery, he would call Skurlock out of the bank. They even paid off bank employees for information that would help them in robbery. He was able to convince Mark Biggins to forget about the first robbery, and he became an in-bank lookout for Scott's back. Police became concerned that it could be a police officer committing the crimes due to their technique. Steve, on 48 hours, praised Skurlock for his professional approach, saying, His whole point was if you go in crazy with violence and waving a gun and something does happen, what do you do then? Most people working in banks realize that this guy is not afraid. That is more frightening and commanding without having to be crazy. Myers also said that they robbed two of the banks three times each. By the end of 1995, Skurlock had stolen almost $1 million. The FBI did notice a pattern and figured that Skurlock needed about $20,000 per month. They were able to determine this by noticing the pattern of his robberies, which seemed to be based around how much money he got within any given robbery. With this information, they were able to determine that he would rob or when he would rob the next bank and made an educated guess as to which bank it would be. Their guess on the date, January 25th, 1996, was exact, but they surveyed a bank that was about two miles away from the actual bank he robbed, and the FBI didn't arrive at the robbery scene in time. By 1996, Mid Skurlock, with Biggins and Myers, had robbed two more banks, bringing their total to 17 banks in four years. 
The FBI put a $50,000 reward on the capture of the robber, thinking at the time that there was only one person involved. The reward sign showed a sketch of the robber that looked nothing like Skurlock. On the final robbery attempt, the threesome, emboldened by the reward on Skurlock, planned on robbing five banks in the same night. According to Steve Myers, they even had a mobile base station set up to white out the police frequencies. But after the police advanced, uh, er, had announced that every bank in Seattle had put electronic tracers with any stolen money, they scaled back the plans and decided to rob just one bank, Seafirst National Bank. It was a rainy, dark Thanksgiving Eve, 1996, at around 5.30 p.m. when they hit the Seafirst Bank, which they learned was going to have 3 to $4 million on hand that day. They marched into the bank, spent about four minutes inside, and walked out with their largest take to date. As they exited, they instructed everyone to stay on the floor until police arrived. But during this robbery, two very important things happened that hadn't happened to any of the others. A teller had recognized the robbers and hit a silent alarm as soon as they had first arrived in the bank. Police didn't arrive um, before they fled, but they had gotten a key head start. And even though they had been told to stay on the floor, one of the bank's customers had disobeyed the orders and followed them after they left. The customer described the getaway car to the police. This could have aided in capture, but not far from the bank, they ditched the uh, getaway car and switched to a white van. They started digging frantically through the money looking for electronic trackers. It was about this time in their getaway that they became stuck in Thanksgiving holiday rush hour traffic. Which I love. It's like you can plan out every detail of your crime. But traffic will always get you in the end. It will always get you. And at that point, police say that they spotted a van in which there was a flashlight going back and forth. Keeping in mind that they're, you know, shining a flashlight in the dark trying to find the tracker on this money. So the police, in a number of vehicles, surrounded the van, which had turned onto a side street, and stopped. Police claimed that Steve Myers got out of the van with a rifle and began shooting at them first, but Steve Myers said that he never got out of the van and that police fired on them first. Myers said that he and Biggins were shot in the arms as a result and uh, were immobilized. Skurlock, who was driving, was the one who got out of the van, intending to fire into self-defense, but his rifle jammed. He then got back in the van. Oh god, I just lost my spot so bad. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no, this is so bad. Okay, here we go, here we go, I found it. A severely injured Biggins returned 37 rounds at the police. Skurlock jumped out of the van and fired three rounds from a shotgun at the police. The van then took off but crashed into the side of a house. Biggins and Myers were found in the van with more than $1 million spread out over the floor of the van in addition to weapons, makeup, clothing, and blood. But Skurlock wasn't there. He had escaped the scene without being noticed by police when he jumped before the van had took off before the last time. Police searched the area thoroughly, but were unable to find Skurlock. The next day, Thanksgiving, Wilma Walker and her family were getting ready for Thanksgiving dinner. Just for peace of mind, her son Ronald decided to check their camper in the back of their house. A few minutes later, Ronald came to the house saying, I saw him! I saw him! He has curly curly black hair, according to Wilma. They then called the police. Three officers showed up. One knocked on the door of the camper and identified themselves. There was no response. The police sprayed two full canisters of pepper spray into the camper. They still heard nothing. Police were convinced there was no one in the camper, but to satisfy the Walker family, Sergeant Howard Monta went over to take one more look. 
He began to look in the camper when his flash- with his flashlight when a gunshot went off. Monta had thought he had been shot. Two other officers opened fire on the camper. More officers responded. Approximately four hours passed with nothing happening, and then the police fired tear gas into the camper before making an entry. Police entered the camper and found Skurlock dead from a self-inflicted gun wound. The gunshot that Sergeant Monta had heard was actually Skurlock shooting himself. The FBI searched Skurlock's property and found an arsenal, evidence of extensive travel plans, a secret underground room where Hollywood stole all of his disguises and makeup, and tons of cash stored away and buried in the yard. The Walkers eventually collected $60,000 in reward money after it was initially denied by the banks on a technicality. Thanks to media and public backlash, though, however, the banks were pressured into issuing the reward money. His accomplices, Stephen Myers and Mark Biggins, were each sentenced to 21 years imprisonment. Myers was released in 2013 and Biggins in 2015. The number of robberies, 18 in total, and the amount stolen, almost $2.3 million, makes Skurlock one of the most prolific bank robbers in the history of the United States. His treehouse has since been demolished and the property sold. Thank you for listening to Olympia Oddities. Like the Facebook page at Olympia Oddities Podcast and follow me on Instagram if you want at, at Trista Jean for updates on the podcast. And uh, bye. Have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Winter Solstice, a Happy Yule, Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. And remember, if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. <laughs>